today on Foodstuffs. Brian revisits the family archive to tell the story of his grandparents. How fear and discrimination led them to the sugar beet farms of Alberta. They're hollering at us, you know, that they used to be our friend, but now we're not, eh? He said, don't you come back, you japs, you know? <laughs> Anyways, yeah, that's discrimination in the worst way. Yeah, and they were free to discriminate too. Welcome to Foodstuffs, a podcast about food and culture and their intersections. I'm Jessica Walker and I'm Brian Goman. So this is the final episode of season three. We're here at the end, Jess. How did that happen? <laughs> it happened really quickly. I guess because we do them every week now. It feels a lot quicker. <laughs> it does. So that was one of the things that we changed up this year. New format, only one interview per show. And we're coming every week. So that's been an adjustment. And um, I think it's been great. I really like how it's gone. I think it's given us more freedom to uh, go a little deeper in our interviews. And uh, it's gotten out us in front of people more often. I like that. Exactly. And just allows us to really let the interviews kind of speak for itself rather than trying to fit it into our format. So that's really freeing. Yay. Yeah. And some exciting <laughs> news as uh, reported a few weeks ago, uh, one of our episodes was featured or an excerpt of one of our episodes was featured on CBC's podcast playlist yeah. and Jess you got to go into the CBC studios and, and talk about that a little bit uh, that must have been <laughs> exciting yeah it was nice to be there it was nice to be back um, visit some old friends and go back into the studio and actually strangely would have never spoken on the mic when I was there right um, but then yeah so to be on the mic there was actually quite a trip yeah no that was terrific and I really feel like it's sort of shown that this show is gaining some notoriety and regarding <laughs> getting some momentum yes um, and uh, we'll be coming back uh, we're going to go for a short break and we'll be coming back uh, quite soon with the whole new season and we've got some great stories we're really excited about that yeah exactly we're taking about four weeks um not stopping working we're not on vacay but we are just going to take some time regroup make some plans uh, talk to some cool folks and uh and then we'll come back in february so that'll be great so we wanted to finish this season off with a personal story i know that we get to talk to a lot of different types of people um week over week but i know that the more personal ones are always the ones that resonate with me and that i think about um over the long term so for this, we turn to Brian's maternal grandparents, who were Japanese Canadians born here in Canada in British Columbia, both of whom were interned during World War II and sent to the sugar beet farms of Alberta. Brian, this is a pretty wild story. I mean, wild to me as someone who doesn't have this in my family lineage, um, but I think a really important story. What made you want to share it with us? Yeah, well, I mean, this is something that I wanted to talk uh, about for a long time. And uh, I realized actually that 
this year marks the 75th anniversary of their internment. So it seemed like a good good time to share it. And, you know, everything that's happening in the world right now, I feel like there's a lot of parallels. Uh, I mean, the Japanese-Canadian internment really happened because there was an anti-Asia movement that was happening be- even before the war. Uh, it stemmed largely from the fear that Japanese were stealing jobs from the white man. Sound familiar? Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly in the fishing industry, um, they were Japanese were great fishermen, and they held more than half of the uh, salmon fishermen licenses uh, around the turn of the century, and that was seen as a real threat. So there was actually even an Asiatic Exclusion League set up by a group of more than five thousand laborers in, in BC. So this was a real movement that was happening. Yeah, it really does have some echoes to recent times. I'm shaking my head as you're speaking. Um, So when the war broke out, there were fears that Japanese Canadians would act as spies for Japan. Um, This is sort of the familiar part. So it was decided that all Japanese should be moved to at least 100 miles off the West Coast. Most were held in livestock barns in Hastings Park in Vancouver before being sent to internment camps in interior B.C., Those who resisted were sent to a barbed wire enclosed POW, prisoner of war camp, in Angler, Ontario. Families were often split up, the men sent to the road camps in Alberta and and northern Ontario, while women, children, and elderly men lived for years in these hastily, shoddily built camps. One way families were able to stay together was by agreeing to work on sugar beet farms where there were worker shortages. My grandma and grandpa were part of this group, and... Keep in mind, I never learned any of this in school, Um, but just in speaking to uh, my family, I started to learn more and more, and towards the end of his life, my grandpa, or my papa as I called him, started opening up and telling me the story of his life, uh, part of which included uh, his internment experience. So... Of course, I started bringing the recorder by uh, every time I would visit them. And over the course of about a year, I put together an archive of my grandparents' life. Partially for me to remember these stories that I'd never heard, really, and partially to share it uh, with my family. So this is something that I can um, share with my son and any future generations. Mm, That's really nice. I love that you had the thought to bring your recorder along. Um, Audio is a really special way of kind of tying generations. Um, My best friend's cousin over the Christmas holiday sent out a tape of her grandmother who passed away within the last year reading a storybook to her now, you know, two and three-year-old children Um, knowing that she was also going to be passing away. It was a Christmas story. Um, And just watching my best friend hearing that for the first time and just melting. um, It's really, you know, it's important to have photos and all that sort of thing. But there's something very, very intimate and personal about audio. So um, it's beautiful that you were able to capture that. Yeah, thank you. I highly recommend anyone who could... Yeah, dream up any sort of project to to think about recording audio. I mean, everybody's got a recorder. You got your iPhone now, and the second recording we're going to hear is actually from an iPhone. Like, you don't need to be uh, uh, a professional to do this. Talk to your family members, get this stuff down on tape, and uh, you'll be thankful. Yeah, you really will. I I witnessed it not long ago, and I'm yeah, I am thankful that you have this here today. So, um, you are 
kind of referring to the fact that you wound up getting quite a bit of tape, but right, you've yeah. chosen a specific part for us today. Yes. So what are we going to hear then? We're going to hear two tapes that were recorded um, at different times on the same day. Uh, the first one is just uh, myself and my papa. Uh, it's August 10th, 2011. Uh, and we're in his kitchen and you'll hear some background noise. You'll hear some people talking in the background. That's my grandma and a friend. Um, mm -hmm. And you'll also hear him sort of, you know, emphasizing, hit his hitting his hand on the table and stuff like that. At times. Right. So it's a very live tape, but um, I think uh, I think I hope people will enjoy it. So this tape picks up with him talking about growing up in B.C. Okay, let's have a listen then. This is Brian speaking with his papa, Gen Miki, from his home in Hamilton, Ontario, in 2011. Well, well I grew up in the early 30s, and that's a dirty 30s, eh? And the uh, time was very tough, yeah. And uh, my dad had this berry farm, strawberry farm, and raspberry farm, blackberries. Now, what kind of food is that? It's more of a luxury food, eh? It's, uh, people can have it because it's, it's good and it's delicious, but it's not the, the kind of food that you must have to keep your right. health and the... It's not a staple. Yeah, yeah it's, it's not a staple food. So, during the 30s, you're... Uh, price of those luxury food a cop rock bottom eh yeah and during the month of June my dad will have to make enough money with those strawberries in that four to six weeks June to first couple of weeks in July he's got to have enough income and put it in the bank to see him through the winter wow. into the next, uh, yeah. And uh, in those days, uh, you know, around uh, uh, 28, $2,900, maybe $3,100 would see a family with the f uh, enough uh, money to feed your horses, you know, and uh, and maintain your, or oh, pay for your hydro and stuff like that through the, the winter to the next harvest time, eh? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But uh, I remember I was in grade 11. This was in uh, the 1930, 1936-37. Time was really bad, and uh, during the, the harvest time, it was a bad weather. You know, rain, rain every day from morning till night. You know, and the berries are getting ripe, but you can't get into the field because you you don't. You, as soon as you get in there, your feet and your mud mm -hmm. just becomes a ball of mud, and no workers will get out there because. They don't have plastic rain gear like you have today, and they uh, it's uh, they won't go out in that rain. So consequently, my dad's income was almost nil. Uh, what was uh, 
he had a bad crop, bad season a year before. Mm -hmm. So there used to be a, a co-op. It's a privately owned mm -hmm. organization that he, during the off season, he goes to to sell his produce, you know, like the berries and the rhubarbs and the raspberries and stuff. And they, uh, he would get the order for a contract to supply this outlet with a certain amount of uh, berries and that, eh? So, anyways, Dad belonged to this one in the, in the Mission City, and which was about nine miles away from our farm. And uh, he would get what they call the advance money, you know, get some money for right. the... He's got so many acres that he's going to of strawberries and so many acres of raspberries and he'll contract everything that that field would produce, you know, and uh, I'll uh, advance you $2,500, eh? So that's fine. So that, uh, if he's got to be very, very careful, the mm -hmm. $2,500 in those days were quite a bit of money and they, uh, to uh, put you through to the next harvest time, eh? Yeah, and uh, that's how they had, they already had money paid to them for next year's right. produce. Yeah, and there wasn't any. Yeah, and uh, whatever was, and the co-op would take their payments first, and whatever is left, they'll give it to the farmers. Like, eh? yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah. was this in was this Cumberland or where was this? The, uh, this was in uh, Maple Ridge, it's a lower Fraser Valley. It's a, it's about uh, thirty five miles upriver from the uh, from Vancouver from the or the mouth of uh, the the Fraser, Fraser. River. Eh? Yeah, and we go on the north side, and uh, I don't know why when Dad came out to buy property so that he can farm, would have to buy a uh, land in that country because it's primarily hardwood. The hardwood is alder and they're, they're very leafy plant and the roots are very rooty. Eh? Yeah, it's a hardwood and it's very hard to clear a country like that. And he bought 13 acres of this uh, uh, land because there was a creek that ran through the corner of the property. And, yeah, so he's got the water and uh, he thought he could clear this uh, land quite easily. But you know, he can, mom and dad would work all winter and they could barely get half acres cleaned up with maples and alder and evergreens, you know, and uh, he would have to get the uh, dynamite and loosen the the soil, yeah, and then he, with his team of horses, he would try and uproot yeah. all the roots, eh? yeah, it was, uh, it was a terrible, terrible work. Anyways, they used to, uh, by the time I was uh, grade 10, grade 11, they had about, uh, uh, 12 or 13 acres cleared, yeah, and uh, but the thing, we were right in the middle of dirty 30s and uh, 
I remember when Dad would get $2.50 for a crate of uh, 24 Halux little baskets of berries, eh, in a crate. $2.50, he'd be very, very happy. And a lot of times, only half that price, eh, yeah. And uh, the raspberries and blackberries were were even less because they went into, uh, they weren't much of the eating f food because of the seed, you know, yeah. But they went into to the jam factories and and the jelly factories, yeah, yeah. So, um, how old were you when when um, when you were evacuated? I was twenty years old. Yeah. And you'd been working on the farm for a while. No, I worked at the farm till I was seventeen, and that that summer we had very very bad. I knew that Dad wasn't able to get the advance for next crop, next crop the following year's crop because he didn't make enough, send enough berries to mm -hmm. pay off for the money that they had borrowed a year before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I said, I got to do something. I was the oldest son. I thought, you know, you know, unless I go and get a job where I would get enough money to send home so that so it'll uh, be enough money to pay for their groceries and and hydro and telephone, because uh, by that time we had all that, even though there was something new in our country, telephone and electric lights, you know, hydro, yeah. So uh, at that time, <coughs> the place in uh, Haosang, a uh, place called uh, Wood Fiber, they uh, they got the wood in the first stage of go making paper. It's called the pulp, and then the pulp is produced into a into a paper like it. So I I got up to him, to one of the elder pers uh, person. I says, you know, you try and get me a job there, you know, and because uh, with the farm the way it is, they're gonna have a hard time surviving over the winter. And uh, can you uh, get me, try and get me a job there? Yeah, and uh, so he told my dad that I'm trying to get a job up there. My dad says, no, no, no. He says, he's not going to work. He says, he's going to stay with school and uh, be a doctor or a lawyer or something. Yeah, I says, you know, I says to him, he can hardly survive him, the family. Where's my dad going to get that kind of money to send me to school, you know? So I says, oh, no, that's not good. He says, that's, that's not a, a very feasible argument. He says, i got to go and get that job in the, where you're going is, uh, and uh, in order for me to keep them alive in the springtime, you know, keep my whole family. So he says, okay. I, so he sent a letter back to me saying that I got a job. So I couldn't get there soon enough, eh? Yeah, I took uh, whatever I had in a little cardboard suitcase of this big, you know, <laughs> and uh, and uh, 
the clothes I wear out in the country, I guess it sure was country hakish, I guess, eh? Because when I got up there, they, they all laughed at me. He says, what kind of country do you come from? Did you come from? He says, you look like you're just out of the woods. <laughs> yeah, but that's all right. I says, you know, I, I, oh, where we lived, nobody had fancy clothes, so, you know, I was able to get by, but I'll soon get myself a nice clothes like you people have. You know, anyways, uh, I, uh, I was, I was raised on a farm, so I was, uh, you know, I thought I did enough work, but my, my fingers swole so much that I couldn't hold the brush, a toothbrush in the morning. I used to have it stick it in here. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I don't know how I managed to get up in the morning because we had to be at the mill at eight o'clock in the morning. And you have to have your breakfast before then, eh? Yeah. And anyways, I, I can remember we used to get these miso soup and rice, eh? So everybody eat the rice and have the miso soup like this. You know, what I did was miso soup, their bowl is a bigger one. So I used to, I used to put, put rice in there and then scoop the miso soup on top of that and make it into a broth like, eh? Yeah. So you can go down quick. I uh, did hardly any chewing. I used to swallow about three bowls of that and then I feel like I'm full and I'm three minutes to eight. Yeah, yeah I gotta run down there. I had to, we had to run down 101 steps to the the beach level and that's where the sawmill is. And then from the bottom, there's about 50, 60 yards to the sawmill. And I used to run as fast as I can, get up there. And I'm going up the step and the whistles, boom, eight o'clock. <laughs> And you're supposed, the machine is supposed to be started. Yeah. Anyways, uh, yeah, I managed to get through. Yeah. yeah. So you worked there at the pulp paper mill for three years? Uh, yeah. I, uh, yeah, three years and a little bit, I think. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, and then the war started. And, uh, and right away in a paper, Vancouver Southern Province, this is uh, gotta get rid of the Orientals from the coastline because I know the Japanese soldiers will be coming aboard and they'll be helping them and tell them all, all they know about the area's geography and everything. So, you know, we gotta get them away from the coastline. So. That's what happened. They, we, uh, a year later, uh, 1940, or it was April of 1942. They, uh, I was still working in Vancouver when I got a, a phone call to my place where I was staying. He says, you gotta get home before eight o'clock in the morning because the truck is coming to load, take our baggage and transport us to this railway station uh, where we will board the train and move out to 
the prairie someplace. They didn't even know where it was. Anyways, God Almighty, I had to rush home, you know? Yeah, and then when I got home, this was late in the evening. The house was empty, all the furniture was put away. You know, the beds were uh, blankets and that was all put away in a baggage, you know? Yeah, anyways, I, I uh, fortunately I had a tweed suit, Harris tweed, which was a, a big thing in those days, you know? It's, uh, it's warm and then you can wear it for for days and not show the crease or anything, yeah. So, anyways, I sat in a chair and uh, slept, I guess, and I, next morning the truck, early next morning the truck came along and uh, we loaded the baggage onto the back and we had to hop on there on the back. And then my mother and my sister got in the cab yeah, and anyways, we uh, and we were driving down to the station, and our friends were just going to school then, and they says, "Don't you come back, you japs!" You know, really? Yeah, they're hollering at us. You know, they used to be our friends, but then we used to play with them. But now we're not. They, he said, "Don't you come back, you japs!" You know, <laughs> anyways, yeah, that's discrimination in the worst way. Yeah, and they were free to discriminate too. Yeah, there's no, uh, uh, there's no law saying that uh, yeah, we're protected, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. 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 Yeah, but when we came to this, uh, town in Picture Butte, yeah, the, the whole town was there to see with curiosity what kind of people they are, mm -hmm. because the commissioner that went out there to find the farms that would take on a, a certain numbered family, you know, they wouldn't spread the word that were completely alien, eh, yeah, and, uh, Uneducated. Uneducated, yeah. And they're, yeah, they, uh, they're bush, bush people, you know. Yeah, yeah, because um, under a tree is good enough for them to live in, you know. Just, well, uh, yeah. you finished with your conversation there? Yeah. What are you going to do? No, oh, I thought maybe we can go to the Iron Chef. Oh, okay. Are you hungry, Brian? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, so that's tape one. You can hear my grandma interjecting at the end. I want to mention that there's some sort of Japanesey thing going on there. My grandma sort of like chastising slash making fun of my grandpa there <laughs> just for talking so much about himself. Like she says, like, are you done with your conversation? Like, are you still talking about yourself? Because it's <laughs> sort of against the Japanese custom 
to talk so much about yourself. You're supposed to be humble, but which my pa- papa totally was. But I, I think he could tell he was nearing the end, and he wanted to get some stuff out, and he had a, a captive audience with me. So um, it was his chance to sort of tell a story, and he went with this. So anyway, we went for Chinese food at the Iron Chef, as my grandma alluded to. <laughs> and, uh, I thought we were watching TV there. My yeah. <laughs> no, that was just their, like, neighborly uh, uh, Chinese food joint around the corner really good um, that they would like to go to. So we went there and then came back and after dinner back in the kitchen and uh, now it's uh, my papa, me, and my grandma talking about their time on the sugar beet farm where they met. Uh, unfortunately, my recorder was giving me su- some trouble at the time, so this tape is an iPhone recording as I alluded to earlier, but I think you can still hear what's going on. Okay, that sounds good. Here is tape number two recorded at the Miki family home in Hamilton, Ontario on August 10th, 2011. So I, I thought, did you guys know each other before? Did you meet before the evacuation? I thought you met during... No, during that, no. We uh, we both we met each other in Alberta when we were doing the sugar beets. Yeah, yeah. okay, yeah. Yeah, we got married and came out this way because... Dad had a, Grandpa had a friend out here saying, you got to come within the week or if you yeah. have a job now. Yeah. So we got married and came out this way quickly. Because <laughs> jobs were hard to get then. Yeah. Unless you want to stay on the farm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, it was terrible working on the farm. <laughs> that uh, sugar beet farming, the, the early part of farming was not too bad, you know, the weeding and planting and and the thinning the uh, space between the plants and stuff like that. But, you know, the harvest time, they didn't, they, when they get about two great frost, the real, when they down to about 10 degrees, minus 10, then the sugar contest increases. So the sugar factory, <laughs> for the same amount of bees they'll get more sugar. Consequently, they don't want the farmers to uh, harvest it too soon when the weather mm-hmm. is good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it's usually into October before they, the sugar factory will say, no, they'll, they'll not accept the beets. Like, mm-hmm. eh? Yeah. So, you know, in Alberta, uh, that's like a desert. Uh, semi-desert, that's what it is, uh, the Canadian prairies. And uh, <clears throat> the summer is hot, but it changes from summer to winter with very little notice of autumn weather, like, eh? yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> it's, uh, in September, it's still very warm and nice. And all of a sudden, Toward the end, the last week in September and in October, it turns to winter. Yeah, and and it gets very cold quickly. Yeah, I remember going out there. You know, uh, you uh, it was a real hot day. Next morning, you get up, and there's an inch or two of snow on the ground. eh? Really? Yeah, and we have to go out to the Uh, to the beet field and st- start harvesting, and uh, oh, it's yeah, it's a that that country is a bit of clay mixed soil, and when it gets wet like that, boy, <laughs> you know you can't drive a car on a dirt road because <laughs> the the 
wheels pick up the dirt and fill up the fenders and uh, especially the front wheels you can't you can't make it turn the corners because it's oh. fun it's and you know you get out to that field and it's clayish field and uh, we used to wear these what we call a gum boot it's a <laughs> yeah. boot that came up through on here with no lace, you just put your foot in it, eh? Yeah, and uh, it clays soil. So you go to go and pick up another beat and you pull out, and unless you're careful, your foot comes off the boots. The yeah. boot stays on, yeah. and you step right into the mud, eh? Yeah, I heard that. Uh, I had that happen to me, yeah. and uh, I wouldn't want to think about those things. It was hard work. Yeah. We've never even picked up a hoe when we were kids and yeah. we had to go out there. But the worst part was in the winter, in the, in the fall, when you had to yeah. have these long knives. You know, it was a, it was a, there was a hook on the end and you picked up the beat with, a, with this hook and yeah. then with one motion you grabbed the root of the beat and then you'd cut the top off. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, I don't want to even think about it. it, was, it but was, first they want the clay soil knocked off of them, eh? Yeah. Yeah, because they're... Or you don't get the true weight for your harvest. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, tough work. <laughs> Did you guys do, uh, how long were you, how long were you there on that farm, on the sugar beet farm? Oh, yeah. Well, how long how, were you there? No, how long did you do your, the sugar beets? Oh, you 42 to... 42 40, to 49? No. I bought that truck in 1947. Oh, yeah. So, 42 to 47? Yeah. That's how you were You were on the farm for that long? Wow, yeah. I know, it's a long time. Yeah. yeah. No, I don't you know. You was old, Grandma? No, we didn't go to Alpha. We only stayed three years. I only did sugar beet three years. Three years? Yeah, because we were in, evacuated to Slocan. Okay. Yeah. We were in Hastings Park first, and then we were evacuated to Slocan, where they had all those... Uh, yeah, we were. They years. moved all of our Japanese people anyway. Mm -hmm. There was one girl that had was adopted by an English couple, and she was in her uh, late teens. She had to be, uh, she had to be evacuated too. No, they just doesn't matter what the parents said. Yeah. And bringing or anything, she was still at, you know, um, she was at a Japanese ancestry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know what happened to them, but anyway. We were all mixed up. We were only about 13 or 14 then, so... Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So, I guess. No, I was 14, that's right. Yeah. Well, Papa, I remember you mentioning something about that the conditions that you were... You ended up in, and that kind of that trailer that yeah, you had, and then they, they eventually built the well and everything thing yeah. like that. Yeah. That That was far worse than what they kind of led you to believe oh, yeah. you'd be living in, the conditions you'd be living in? <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 Well, yeah. My, uh, the, my boss said he expected us to come there in red, dressed in rags, bearded face, and uh, looking very pr primitive, eh? And I had my Harris Tweed <laughs> suit on, you know, because I could travel and I could sleep in it and it doesn't wrinkle up like a had a fine wool, mm -hmm. yeah, and uh, and my sisters were all dressed the best, uh, you know, for traveling, and mm -hmm. they going into a strange country, so 
you know how women are, they're all dressed up nicely. Yeah, and uh, when the boss came up to pick us up, oh, he had a, he was very proud of the new Nash car. He says, I gotta buy a new, put my baggage in my Nash car, he says, you know. <laughs> yeah, anyways, uh, uh, he was very glad to uh, see us. He was very friendly, too, because uh, we, <clears throat> and when we went to his place, it was just, the Keynes farm was only about uh, a mile and a half from the town of Picture Butte. And here's this, uh, uh, what do you call these, uh, uh, the pioneers came out west with in these, these wagons, you right. know. Yeah. With the canvas on top, yeah. eh? and that was their home, their fort, and everything else. <laughs> yeah, and the uh, half of the the canvas was gone. I guess that's where they kept their uh, farm seasonal workers there. I guess, eh? Okay. Yeah, and uh, he says, you know, I'm ashamed to say say that that is the place that you're to stay, because he said the commissioners that came to explain about you people was nothing like what you look like now. He says, you know, they said uh, these Orientals are uncivilized uh, uh, country hicks and uh, they're uh, uneducated, they're, uh, they're very, very primitive and uh, that Bennett wagon is plenty good enough for them, you know. The Bennett wagon with half the canvas torn away yeah, He's, uh, he says, good God, he says, you people aren't anything like what the commissioner have, was telling us about. He says, this will never do. I'm going right back to town. I'm going to uh, buy enough lumber. I'll tell them uh, I want to build a cabin 14 by 16. And with room, it partitions into four. And... Uh, uh, my dad and I, and my kid brothers, I guess we, uh, it took us about, uh, oh, close to a week before we got the interior divided into four different mm -hmm. rooms, eh? I think we divided into three rooms. Yeah. Uh, the whole family, my mom and dad stayed on one side, which was a smaller room, and, uh, and the seven of us piled in the other mm -hmm. uh, room, you know, we made, he made double bones, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> and stuff like that. And uh, it was pretty good. And uh, <clears throat> I don't think anybody out there had any means of bathing or washing yourselves, like, you know, showers or baths, eh? Yeah, except for the farmer, farm owners, yeah. I know we never... I can't remember ever having a, a bath out there, yeah. But when we went out to the town, we, 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 we went to Calgary or Lethbridge. Lethbridge was only about 20 miles away. And uh, in the, around the surrounding areas, there's motels. So we used to go there and rent it and use their showers and bathtubs, see, yeah. That was the only way we could wash ourselves, yeah. Yeah. Really, so you had to go, you had to go to a motel just to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. rent a motel. 
Well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we went through different generations, I guess. Yeah. It was, we were like pioneers when you see some of these old old movies. Eh? Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, it did. It didn't. It didn't ruin us anyway. Yeah. Yeah. That was Brian in conversation with his grandparents Gen and Jean Miki. Um, at their home in Hamilton, Ontario on August 10th, 2011. Thanks so much for sharing that, Brian. That was really amazing. Yeah, it was uh, interesting going through that tape. I haven't listened to that for a little while um, and going through all that. And, you know, my, my grandpa is now uh, passed. He, he, he died in about a year after that, that tape. And uh, mm-hmm. my grandma's still around. And uh, we actually talked to her um, mm-hmm. at the beginning when we were just starting to do this and we were planning on, on having her be part of, uh, one of the early episodes. And it was amazing that it was like we had, I had waited just about a year too long to talk to her cause she was just past being able to really remember a lot of these things. Right. Um, so just another reminder to <laughs> talk to these family members when, when you can, when, uh, when the stories are really fresh and, you know, I do think it's, uh, an interesting story and a very, and a very Canadian story. Maybe not a Canadian story that um, everybody wants to uh, celebrate, but you know it is part of our our history. Absolutely, yeah, I know. And thinking about this when you were doing your introduction, you were saying this is the seventy fifth anniversary of this one, of um, you know when they went to the sugar beet farms, um, and it just so happens to be the hundred and fiftieth quote unquote birthday of right. Canada this year. Um, which I don't know for people who are listening, like if what you're reading about that, if you're reading anything yet, but, um, there's a, there's a lot imbued in that, that is not so simple. And to say, Oh, la di da, happy birthday, Canada is very quaint and very, very dismissive of some really dark past. Um, and I think that that actually ties in a lot with what this brings up, right? This, um, this glossy history of Canada that right. doesn't leave in the uh, inconvenient pieces for us feeling proud of ourselves as, you know, the multicultural country that we are. Blah, exactly. Blah, blah. Yes. And we are that so, in a lot of ways we are that, but I feel like this is the part of the story that gets sort of swept under the rug. You know, I mean, um, even uh, Italians in uh, world war two in Montreal were interned as well. People don't mm-hmm. uh, like to talk about that. Uh, the Chinese Canadians, obviously, um, we know a little bit about that, but a lot of that history, again, has sort of not talked about. And I feel like it's so contradictory because when you're a kid, you know, I was one of those kids that was like, uh, history, why don't we want to learn about history? And the argument always back from the teachers was, if we don't learn about history, we're doomed to repeat it. Well, exactly. you know, so we're going to only tell the good parts and leave the sort of hard stories out. And like you say, if you're, you know, if you're a well-read person or if you listen to CBC or, you know, uh, mm-hmm. have family and friends to speak to, you'll learn more for sure. But um, again, I think that these kinds of stories get um, hidden a little bit and then we do repeat them because look at what's happening um, right now to the Muslim community. Obviously, in Canada, we have a very... Um, I think we're a lot more open and accepting than other parts of the world, but still 
you know, there is. It's not um, perfect. It's not perfect oh at God. all by any means. Um, look Mm-mm. at what happening is happening uh, to the south of us in the states. Look what's happening in um, in England with uh, Brexit. A lot of these sort of nationalist arguments are exactly the same as they once were, which is like these people are coming in and they're taking our jobs and they're willing to work for less because they don't expect us high quality of living. When, but when you look at it, like the it, the low quality of living is because they have no choice. This exactly. is just they're just poor because they're here in a strange country, and yeah, that's what life is. That's what they have to do to to survive. Even after the war, exactly. you like you you think, like my grandma mentioned that they where there was a rumor of a possible job, so they just yeah, got exactly. married, packed up, and went all the way over to Hamilton, hoping to get something going because from that Alberta was, to Hamilton. Yeah, and that was it. That was just like, well, let's. Let's go for it because what would could they could they really do? Canada was offering to deport um, Japanese Canadians back to Japan, even though most had, had never lived there, were born in Canada, and those that actually did chose uh, to do that, um, I've learned were ostracized in in Japanese and treated as second class citizens. So yeah, you know, and I think a lot of people probably knew that that was the case. So. All they could do is stick it out and try to make it, and um, they did. Exactly, and, and so the the conversation um, at the time of you know they're taking our jobs and they're undercutting us and this and that that was just again survival mode resilience yeah. because they wouldn't have chosen to be taking less money if they had an option I'm quite sure for sure it was just their only edge right what are you gonna do like again like my papa got that took that job at 17 because he had to you know his Mm -hmm. they owed money to the co-op there was no way they were going to make enough money so he's the eldest son and that's another Japanese thing if you don't know that the eldest son not necessarily the eldest child but the eldest son is sort of um they're like de facto number two and they inherit everything uh, they inherit mm-hmm. if there's a business or anything like that, um, and certainly they are the one that is most responsible for the family after um, the father. So that's just how things went, um, mm-hmm. and so it, a lot of it was on him. And actually, even when he came out here to Hamilton, the entire family he gave all his money to his family and left it there with him, and they just came and uh, settled in Hamilton and said, "Where are we living again?" <laughs> and like he ended up having to, you know, put up a bunch of his family and uh, um, his mom and dad live with them both uh, my, and my parents until uh, they both passed away. So um, that was, again, just uh, the way it was. You took care of your family and you did whatever you had to. So, um, again, not a Japanese thing, just a, an, an, Im- an immigrant thing. And I mm-hmm. just, uh, you know, yeah, like you say, it's sort of it's survival mode and uh, you do what you got to do. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I think that after our conversation with Jean, your grandmother, um, we pulled out some photographs. And if I remember correctly, we have a an amazing photo of the two of them on their first New Year's Eve. Was it New Year's Eve? Oh, uh, yeah, Hamilton that's right. Yep. That we have to share, Brian. It's yep. so beautiful yeah they're very um, uh, and we might have a few others in there as well yeah but, for sure yeah, yeah i'll dig some up for sure but um yeah that was their their first uh i think new year's i think you're right first new year's dinner and uh in hamilton in their in their house 
And uh, yeah, you can see from sort of like country bumpkins, you know, like both my my. Uh, I would never know that history by looking at that photo. Yeah, no, they uh, you know they wanted to get there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you sharing with us, and um, and I don't know. I think that more of this is really really important. So, here's to that. And that was another episode of Foodstuffs. Thanks so much to my grandparents, uh, Gan and Jean Mickey, for speaking with me. Um, always a uh, it was nice, nice hearing those tapes again. Yeah, for sure. And thanks to you, Brian, for sharing them with us because that is some personal stuff. And I don't know. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. And um, thanks to everyone for listening to another season. Of foodstuffs, as mentioned, this is the last episode of the season. We're going to take a little bit of a break and um, just uh, keep an eye on us on social media, and we'll be back before you know it. Absolutely. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Foodstuffs Life, or you can find us on Facebook by searching Foodstuffs. We're also on the web at foodstuffs.life on our brand new website. A brand new sparkly website. Um, Also, of course, please be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, Then you won't have to look out for us on social media because it'll just pop up when we're back in February. So easy. It's so easy to podcast. (laughs) To podcast listen anyway. Yeah, exactly. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. I'm Brian Goldman. And I'm Jessica Walker. We will see you next month.